Shalom. I'm Rabbi Alan Haber, and this is the Am Levadad Yishkon podcast. In this weekly series, we will discuss, analyze, and try to understand a unique entity, an entity that is called Am Yisrael. And I deliberately use the word entity to describe Am Yisrael, and not any other term that might come to mind, for reasons that will become much clearer over the course of this series. But just to get the ball rolling, let's let's look at those three words that uh, that we've chosen as the name for this series. Am Levadad Yishkon, a nation that shall dwell in solitude. Those three words come from the book of Bamidbar, and the author of those three words is a person about whom one might even wonder why the Torah bothered to record his pronouncements at all. And certainly, he may seem a strange choice to uh, to choose if I'm looking for someone to quote when I want to describe what Am Yisrael is. Because the author of those three words is none other than Bil'am ben Beor, the great enemy of Am Yisrael, who came and tried to destroy us with his curses. It might seem strange to quote one's enemy when trying to understand oneself, but the truth is, upon further reflection, it's not that strange at all. It often behooves us to listen to what our enemies have to say about us. Because although they hate us, and although they come with attempts to harm us and even to destroy us, they often see things about us. And if we listen to what they say, even though, of course, we don't accept their conclusions, but if we if we listen to what they say and we look at what they see, we may have a lot to learn about ourselves. So let's take a look at this pasuk, where those three words come from. Bezrat Hashem, later in this series, will have an opportunity to analyze the figure of Bilam in much greater detail and to study his his statements in depth. But for now, let's take a look just at that pasuk. Bilam says, I'm reading from, para, from Sefer Bamidbar, Perak Chav Gimel, Pasuk Tet, Ki meirosh tzurim erenu umigvaot ashurenu heinam levadad yishkon uvagoyim lo yitchashav. Bilam, who at that moment was standing at the top of a mountain, looking down at Am Yisrael with a with an overview which enabled him to physically see the entire nation that was camped below his feet at that moment and with his prophetic vision also to see an overview of the entire future history of that people. He said, From on top of these rocks and from these hills I can see Heinam Levadad Yishkon I can see that this is a nation that shall always dwell in solitude and will never be counted among the nations. I believe that what Bilam saw at that moment was that for all of time, Am Yisrael would be fundamentally different than everyone else, than all other nations, than all other religious groups, all other ethnic groups, any other terminology or any other category that you might attempt to use to try to categorize and understand Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael will always defy definition and will always be different. I believe that what Bilam saw at that moment was that for all of time, it will be possible to divide the people in the world into two categories. On one side is Am Yisrael. And on the other side is everyone else, all other people in one group and Am Yisrael standing off by itself alone. That's not to say that there's no um, contact between the two or no similarities or that neither has anything to learn from the other. Far from it. 
Am Yisrael is very much a part of the human experience, is very much a part of history, is very much a part of humanity. And we have a lot to give to the world and we have a lot to learn from the world. But, in spite of those interactions, Am Yisrael remains fundamentally different. Different rules apply to us. We operate according to a different set of principles. In order to understand what that means, let's take a step back and let's look at ourselves, let's look at our history from the sort of objective viewpoint of, let's say, a, let's say a historian, someone who just comes as with a sort of scientific outlook and tries to understand what is this group known as Am Yisrael. Let's go back to ancient times. And we have a few thousand years ago, maybe, maybe 3,000 years ago or so, we have in the land of Israel uh, a group of tribes in an area that for many hundreds of years had been under the domination of the great uh, the great empires of the time, the Egyptian Empire to the south and Mesopotamia to the north. And at some point around 3,000 years ago or so, we have a nation uh, or a group of tribes that manages to unite themselves. I'm talking about what we refer to as the period described as the book of Sefer, or the book of Shmuel in the beginning of Sefer Malachim. And we have a group of tribes that appoints a king over itself and um, becomes a powerful nation, manages to free itself from the dominion of the various empires and, and neighboring countries that had, uh, that had caused them trouble beforehand, and becomes a powerful country, and even builds an empire of their own for a brief period of time during the reign of David and Shlomo, for a period of maybe, maybe 70 years or so. Uh, this is not only a powerful country, but a re- eventually reaches the status even of an empire that dominates and rules over many of the other countries in the area. And after this fairly brief golden age of, uh, of dominance, things begin to deteriorate. The nation splits into two parts. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And over the next several hundred years, these two kingdoms exist, sometimes in conflict with one another, sometimes making alliances with one another, sometimes regaining some of their power, sometimes losing their power, ultimately losing the dominion over the neighboring countries that they had, and eventually coming themselves under the domination of the great empires to the north that attack the area and eventually invade and uh, and overcome these people, starting with Aram, and later on with Ashur, Assyria, which eventually completely destroyed the northern kingdom, carried its people off to exile, and brought that kingdom to an end. And, the, and almost did that to the southern kingdom as well. The southern kingdom, Malchut Yehuda, managed to, uh, to save itself and to preserve some level of autonomy and to continue to exist as an independent nation for a bit more than a hundred years uh, after the Assyrian invasion until another great empire, Bavel, the Babylonians, came in and destroyed the southern kingdom as well, destroyed all of its cities, and carried its people off into exile. Just as they had done, and just as the Assyrians before them had done, to all the other nations that they conquered. From an objective historical standpoint, what we would expect at that point is that this would basically be the end of the story of the ancient Israelites. And we could write a history that lasted approximately... Six, seven hundred years, maybe a little bit longer, depending on when you start the story, of a nation that rose to prominence, existed, created a culture uh, of its own, and uh, existed for several hundred years, had a whole history, and ultimately, like all other nations, 
fell into a state of decline, was conquered, was carried off into exile, and the people ultimately would be expected within a generation or two to assimilate into the surrounding cultures and basically to cease to exist as an independent entity. That's what we would have expected to happen. But lo and behold, that's not what happened. But after a fairly brief exile of 70 years, this people began to return, at least part of the people, returned to their land with the permission of the of the next empire in line, the Persian Empire. But they didn't just come back to their land. They rebuilt their temple. And more than that, they rebuilt their society. And ultimately, lived for several hundred years back in their own land, in what we call the period of Bayit Sheni, uh, the second commonwealth, and eventually, towards the end of that period, once again, managed to become an independent kingdom. I'm referring to the period known as the, the time of the Malchea Hashmonaim. They became an independent kingdom and ultimately rose once again to the level of what might be called an imperial power. Once again, by the, time, by the end of the Hashmonai period, we have a, an empire that rules over um, significant territories outside of its own borders. Against all odds. But ultimately, this empire as well falls into a state of decline and another great world power, at this time, the great Roman Empire that, that ruled the world for so many centuries came in and subjugated this people and ultimately once again destroyed their temple, removed their sovereignty and sent them into an exile. And this exile, much different than the first. First of all, it was much, much longer. Whereas the first exile, we're talking about a period of 70 years, the second exile has lasted for several thousand years and still is not completely over. But besides that, the second exile is different from the first in another way as well. And that is that in addition to the length of the exile, it's not a situation where the people were all taken from their country and allowed to live together as a, as a, as a, uh, like a like an autonomous community of their own, like happened in Bavel. But this time we're talking about a dispersion. We're talking about a diaspora. We're talking about a nation that was ultimately scattered to the point where today the descendants of Am Yisrael, if you want to call them that, the descendants of the ancient Israelites, are living really on every country on earth and are um, are scattered throughout the world across across all continents. And at this point, for sure we should have expected this people to simply cease to exist. And that would be true even if this people wasn't subjected almost everywhere they went to persecution, to uh, to abuse, and ultimately to attempts at destruction. But of course we know that that is exactly what we were subjected to. And for the next several thousand years, wherever we lived, we were persecuted, we were uh, we were downtrodden, and very often there were those who tried to destroy us in one way or another. There were those who destroyed, tried to destroy us physically by simply attacking us and, 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 and murdering us and we had no means really of defending ourselves. There were those who tried to destroy us culturally or spiritually either by forcing us to convert to other religions or by demanding that we follow the lifestyles of the surrounding uh, cultures or by providing very strong social and economic and political incentives to uh, assimilating on one level or another and very strong disincentives to doing the opposite. And no matter what happened, and, and ultimately this reaches a point where after some 1900 years of this or so, you have Nazi Germany coming and in the most systematic way ever known to man, attempting to, using modern technology, 
commit the complete genocide and wipe out every single one of us. And although tragically uh, they had a great degree of success and managed to murder untold numbers of us, millions of us, nevertheless, they as well did not succeed in destroying us. And the story doesn't end there. Because after several thousand years of stubborn survival against all odds, this people who by now are living on every continent on earth have not been an independent nation for well over a thousand years, close to 2,000 years, don't know anything about running a country of their own, don't know anything about defending themselves, certainly have never been soldiers uh, in any time in recent memory or farmers or, or, or many of the other things you need to run a country. And don't even speak the same language and don't have the same culture at all and are, and are living in the 19th century all over the world when communication is still difficult and not really able to, to unify themselves. Nevertheless, sometime in the middle of the 19th century, these people start to talk about that maybe the time has come to go home. And there begin to be discussions about the idea of returning to their ancient homeland an ancient homeland that they had prayed and and spoken about in in uh, in theoretical terms for and prayed to return to, but that had not been anything practical for almost any of them in many 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 hundreds of years. They start to talk about the idea of going back home and forming an independent country again. That ancient homeland at this point was a desolate wasteland, mostly swamp. Uh, with a very, very small population in the distant corner of the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled it for over 500 years, and uh, or for almost 500 years at that time, and which really had no interest um, in allowing any sort of resurgence uh, and certainly no independence. And nevertheless, this people starts talking about going home. And over the next 150 years or so, that's exactly what they do. They begin to organize mass immigration. They begin first slowly and then in much larger numbers to move to that land and to begin to build a society there, to begin to drain the swamps and uh, against all odds to begin to bring the land to life and their own people to life again. They revive their ancient ancient language. Hebrew, and, this, and that's also something that's completely unparalleled in human history. The, langu- the Hebrew language, just like Latin, was a dead language. It was a language that was used for prayer and for study and, 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 and people, people knew it in the theoretical sense, but nobody, nobody spoke it on a day-to-day level for since, probably since the end of the first temple period. And today, Hebrew is the spoken language of millions and millions of people. Children play in the streets in Hebrew. That's also completely unparalleled. And not only that, but over the course of the next 150 years, this people manages to gather themselves to the point where today, over 40% of them already live in their ancient homeland. They have an independent country of their own already for over 60 years. Uh, one of the most powerful armies in the region. One of the most powerful economies today in the world. A country that, uh, in a land that was a desolate wasteland where nobody could grow anything for so many centuries, today grows enough produce to support a local population of 10 million people and exports fruits and vegetables all over the world. And where projections are that within the next, within the next few decades, a majority of the, uh, of, of the Jews of the world will be living in Israel. All of this, and against the continued opposition, incredible military 
battles that had been fought where they were completely outnumbered and completely outgunned by, by armies that had far many more soldiers and far better technology. And each time and again, in miraculous ways, winning those wars continues to be subjected to unprecedented opposition around the world, in the United Nations and in other places, and, and, and to constant terrorism and other things, and manages to survive and even to thrive in spite of all of that. This story just makes no sense. There is no other group on earth that can make such a claim to such a story. It simply doesn't exist. But this is not even the most amazing thing. The fact that the history of Am Yisrael uh, is so unique and is so different and, and seems to defy all logic, and people have written all kinds of books trying to understand it. This isn't the only thing that makes us unique. There are other things that make us unique as well, such as the mere fact that we have, wherever we go, seem to engender such opposition, such uh, even hatred and such attempts to destroy us and continue to defy all of that. But there's something even even more fascinating. And that is that all of this strange history and all of this really, really incredible story that doesn't make any logical sense, a story that if I would write it as a fictional novel would probably be dismissed as too unrealistic to warrant serious attention. Not only did this all actually happen, but the most amazing thing is that all of this was spelled out and predicted in advance, in exquisite detail, in the Torah and in the books of the Nevi'im. And when I say this, I'm not talking about midrashic interpretations, and I'm not talking about various uh, readings of specific nevuot or specific psukim that uh, that people like to come up with in response to different events. I'm talking simply about pshuto shal mikra that if there are certain places in the Torah and in the Nevi'im where when you read them, it sounds like you're reading a, a summary of, of the history of the Jewish people that was written in the 21st century. But, of course, you're not. You're reading words that were written thousands of years ago. To take just one example, let's look at the Tochacha at the end of the book of Devarim. There are two Tochachot in the Torah. There are two places in the Torah where sort of the history uh, the future history of Am Yisrael in all of its painful detail is spelled out in advance. One, of course, at the end of Vayikra and the other at the end of Tvarim. And this is, these are also things that Bezrat Hashem will have chance to look at in greater detail later on in this series. But for now, let's just look at a few psukim from, uh, from the Tochacha at the end of Tvarim. I'm reading here from Perak Kafchet in the book of Tvarim. And we have here kind of a schematic view. And again, it's important to realize that these words were written three and a half thousand years ago. And by the way, I say that not only as a believing Jew. As a believing Jew, we believe that these words were given at Sinai three and a half thousand years ago. But even those, even those biblical scholars who reject our belief and, uh, and have other theories of where the, where the Bible comes from, they all admit that if not three and a half thousand years ago, like we believe, so then they'll tell you that these that these words are, uh, are 2,800 or 2,700 years old. Even the secular uh, and anti-religious biblical scholars will admit that these words were written at the very latest during the time of the first Beit HaMikdash. And, uh, and they seem to be descriptions that one could write today. The Torah tells us, first of all, that if we follow 
if we follow God's word, that we will be blessed with all kinds of blessings. And then when we get to Pasuk Tatvav of Perakavcha, we read, Vehaya im lotishma bekol Hashem elokecha, lishmor lasot et kol mitzvotav v'chukotav asher anochim et sabcha hayom, uvawe lecha alecha kol haklalot ha'ele v'hisigucha. The Torah tells us that if we don't follow God's will, we will suffer. And it then goes to list a series of sufferings, a series of punishments that, tragically, history says came completely true. First, it talks about sort of natural disasters and difficulties. It talks about diseases. Um, for example, in Pasukaf, Yishalach Hashem Becha, Et HaMe'era, Et HaMehuma, Ve'et HaMigeret. In Pasukaf Aleph, Yadbeik Hashem Becha, Et HaDaver. Various types of diseases. It talks about drought and famine. It talks about drought leading to famine and leading to terrible, terrible suffering. And then it talks about attacks by um, by enemies. Yitencha Hashem nigaf lefnei oivecha. B'derech echad teitzei elav uvishiva drachim tanus lefanav. Vayita lizaava lechom amlechot haaretz. Whereas in better times we were able to defeat our enemies, now our enemies, perhaps in part due to the weakness that we suffered from the natural disasters that came as a punishment for our sins, we are now able to be defeated by our enemies or at least to be harmed by our enemies. And this goes on to d- describe terrible, terrible scenes of of invasions in which people are killed and women are raped and the land is destroyed and our property is stolen and our children taken off as slaves. And then, eventually it gets to the point, Pasuk Lamedvav, Yolech Hashem Otcha Ve'et Malkecha Asher Takim Alecha El Goy Asher Lo Yadata Atav Avotecha Vavadet Hashem Elohim Acherim Eitz Va'avim It begins to talk about at least some of the people and the kings being carried off into exile, a loss of independence, people being taken away as slaves and forced to live in a foreign land where they will, on some level, assimilate and began to worship foreign gods, begin to adopt elements of the of the foreign culture. And then we're told, and then we're told, uh, when I get to Pasuk Memtet, Yisa Hashem Alecha Goy Meirachok, Miktsei Haaretz, Ultimately, a nation will come from far away, from the other end of the earth. Kasher hanasher. Just like an eagle swoops down to, to attack its prey, this foreign nation, goya a goy that's, a nation that speaks a strange language that we don't even understand is going to swoop down like an eagle. And I heard a few weeks ago from Rav Yoel Binun, he pointed out that of course the symbol of the Roman Empire, the one that ultimately destroyed us, was the eagle. Perhaps there's a hint to that as well. But certainly on the level of Pshutosh al-Mikra, we have here a description of a great empire coming from afar and coming down. Goy az panim panim v'nar lo yachon, a nation that is ruthless and is uh, very, very cruel and vicious and will take everything. Take all of our property until we're completely destroyed and leave nothing Leave nothing of us. Destroy our cities. Knock down the walls. Knock down the walls and destroy everything. It describes terrible scenes of famine. 
It describes horrific scenes of people being forced by starvation to eat their own children. Scenes that we know happened, we know from the book of Echa that this happened during the siege of the Babylonians before the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, and we know from the Gemara in Echa and other places, sorry, from the Gemara in Gitin and other places that this happened in the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. It happened at other times as well. And eventually, I'm skipping now down to Pasuk, to Pasuk Samech Gimel. Vaya kasher sas Hashem aleichem lehitivetchem just like once upon a time God took pleasure in rewarding us for our good deeds, now in His anger, as it were, He at least makes it appear as though He takes pleasure in punishing us. You shall be removed from the land that you came in to inherit. And now, when listening to this next Pasuk, remember again, this Pasuk was written thousands of years ago, before any of this happened. And remember what we spoke about earlier, about how irrational Jewish history seems to be. And look at what it said in the Torah was going to happen. It says explicitly that we will be scattered from one corner of the world to another. From Sydney to Los Angeles. From Oslo to Cape Town. Scattered from one end of the world to another. And that we're going to assimilate. And we're also told that no matter what we do, and even when we assimilate, it's not going to work. No matter what happens, we won't be able to rest. We won't be able to assimilate. Even if we try to become comfortable and sort of blend in, it will never work. And I'm thinking here about what Theodor Herzl saw when he witnessed Alfred Dreyfus being put on a trial on false charges and condemned and sent to prison, even though he was a military hero who had given his life to his country for the simple reason that he was a member of Am Yisrael. You will not be able to rest there permanently. Here we have a description, perhaps, of the first 1900 years of Jewish history after the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. And then when we turn to Perak Lamid, we have what reads as an explicit description of that which has happened since. Perak Lamid Pasuk Aleph tells us, At the end of time, after all of that has taken place, the bracha and the klala, something's going to stir inside something's going to begin to happen you're going to begin to want to return to yourself to want to return to your true identity and at least as some at the time like Rav Tzvihersh Kalasher and his Sefer Drishat Zion, like Rav Yehuda Alkali and others as they read these psukim you're, you're going to want to return to your land and that's exactly what began to happen. And there'll be a resurgence also, a rebirth of the learning of Torah and a return to Shmirat Mitzvot. And what does it say is going to happen next? 
ושב השם אלוקיך את שבותך וריחמך, ושב וקיבצך מכל העמים אשר הפיצך השם אלוקיך שמה. Then God will return to you, and He will go around the world and gather you from all the nations where you have been scattered. אם יהיה נידחך בקצה השמיים, משם יקבצך השם אלוקיך, ומשם יקחך. Even if you're scattered to the far corners of the world, again, to Sydney, to Los Angeles, to Oslo, to Cape Town, and everywhere in between, from there God will gather you, and from there He will bring you, והביאך השם אלוקיך אל הארץ אשר יהושע אבותיך וירשתה. You will be brought back to the land that your ancestors inherited, and you shall inherit it. And to see the truth of these words, all I need to do is walk out of my house here in Alon Shvut, and walk up the road, for example, those who are familiar with the area will know exactly what I'm talking about, to stand in the parking lot outside of the Beit Midrash in Yeshivat Haratzion, and to look down at Derech Ha'avot, at the, at the path that our ancestors, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Jews later on in, in the time of Bayit Sheni, Yehuda Maccabee and his armies and others, the land that they walked on, I, I can stand now on top of that very same road, um, next to the Beit Midrash and the Yeshiva with an Israeli flag flying outside and a jeep with Chayalei Tzahal driving by. And I can realize that this Pasuk has also come true. The Jews from around the world, and I can find them on any street corner in Israel, from any continent in the world, have all come home and continue to come home and we have once again inherited the land that our ancestors inherited. That entire crazy story that makes no rational sense The story that we call the history of Am Yisrael was spelled out in exquisite detail in advance in the Torah. This is what it means to be Am Levadad Yishkon. No other group has had an experience anything like that because it doesn't make any sense according to the normal rules of human behavior, the normal rules of history. But we're not normal. We're something completely different. In future weeks, Bezrat Hashem, we will continue to analyze. Uh, starting next week, we'll look at a little bit more detail and try to understand in a more profound and specific way what exactly it is or what the various things are that make us so unique and so different than other people. And then we'll begin to open up the Torah and to read primarily the Chalmishah Chumshe Torah and perhaps a few other sections in Tanakh also with a different perspective perhaps than we've ever done so before and try to understand what the Torah is telling us about these amazing things. Todah.